never say die! Fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 244 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And if I feel the urge to be a vigilante, what I do is I find cars parked outside douchey clubs that have parking tickets on them. I pull the parking tickets off and throw them out. Do you have a death wish? <laughs> Just trying to help him out. I no, he's 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 a rebel. He's a madman. Yes, it's it's, it's much lower than shooting them in the face, but uh, yeah, frequently they get a second ticket and then never pay the first one. Ooh. It's it's like a, a, a you got to find your comfort zone. You know that's what death wish. revenge grenade against strangers. Yeah, I would rather shoot them. Oh, okay, well you're out Texas, so yeah, I, <laughs> I think you would know. also rather be shot. True. So that I was actually well spoilers, but um we were watching I was watching uh, Death Wish the original with my sister, and at one point I just turned to her I was like maybe I'll just take up killing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing. Isn't that you're in the south. Profit? You're in the south. Needed killing as an alibi, isn't it? Exactly. You know that's that's an actual means of defense. And man, needed killing. Some people just need shooting. So fantastic. There you go. <laughs> so if you need shooting, I was hoping for something better, but I guess if you need shooting, <laughs> it's as good as it gets, folks. You can check out the shows on the Podcast Collective, like No Hope for Humanity, Dating Baggage. I am Salt Lake, the Portland Beer Club podcast, and of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. Why are we in the list? We know we're on there. <laughs> you said when you do that, you sound like Jabberjaw winding down. <laughs> All right, if you're looking for some more of this, uh, iTunes, Why Blueberry. I know, right? Stitcher, Tuxu, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and you can give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP, 708-669-9727. And uh, find our older stuff on the previous things I just said. And uh, Geek Life Radio, 12 noon on Saturdays. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so. The sedative is wearing off. Yeah. We're going to get, uh, uh, just, what's, the, what's the name of that cat that he does? Nagopus. I'm so high, even. Sounds like Snagopus after he comes off his high. It sounds nothing like Snagopus. I hate you guys. No, you don't. Oh, that is so about that. I could never hate you. You love us. Mr. No Nos in my cake. Mr. No No, what? Mr. No No's, I'll miss you most of all. <laughs> I love you, Dorothy. Hey, Mr. No No's. Hey, what the hell? What about me? Hey, No No's, get over here. <laughs> okay, that is a, about that time. Oh my God, is it ever? This week in music, movies, and TV. <laughs> All right. So the th- this one is July 24th, 1974, the premiere of Death Wish. <laughs> I was like, what the hell was that? That was deft editing. That's what that was. Nice. So, uh, yeah. So 1974, I was two years old when my mom took me to the theater to see this. 
No, you wait. Did your mom go? See, Not that's the you. thing is that I say that and you're like, no, you plausible. Then we think Mike's mom. Okay. We know Mike's mom. That could have happened. It could have happened. <laughs> All right, July 24th, 1974, music. Joel, take it. The number one song in the land was Rock Your Baby by George McCrae. And you all know that song. Yeah, it's a pretty okay song. Rock your baby to sleep. Uh. That is not how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to remember how to do my Charles Bronson impersonation. Damn it. Oh, my God. You have a Charles Bronson. Well, of course you have a Charles Bronson. How could we tell? but. On July 19th, David Bowie's Diamond Dog Tour ended in New York City. Get a rope. <laughs> Nobody remembers that? Yeah, commercial? we do. It just wasn't funny, man. That's why we're not... Oh, right. Okay. I got you now. Uh, on July 29th, after having performed at two sold-out concerts at the London Palladium, Mama, Cass Elliot, singer for the Mamas and the Papas, died from a heart attack in her London hotel room at 32 years old after choking down a sandwich. Now, did she die from a heart attack, or did she die from choking on a sandwich? She died from a heart attack. She died from a heart attack. It's a it's an urban legend that she choked on a sandwich. She had a half-eaten sandwich sitting on her nightstand when she was found dead. So she ate the first half Aww. and then had a heart attack. It's a waste of a sandwich. Must have been a really good sandwich. Right? <laughs> waste of only half a sandwich, Joel. I'm sure someone got to enjoy the other <laughs> See half. See, the cap comes in. <laughs> what? I'm what's satisfied the, now. What's I'll the situation here? <laughs> Don't touch that sandwich. <laughs> uh, and finally. Perfect, Josh. I, I caught that. Thanks. <laughs> also on July 29th, Neil Peart officially joined Rush. Hmm. Making the Holy Triumvirate complete. Fly by night away from you. That was disturbingly close. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It sounded totally wrong. I didn't realize Getty Lee sung like that. <laughs> All right, moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was Chinatown, which was knocked off by Death Wish. (laughs) Not according to what the notes said. Well, the notes were terrible, so I fixed them. (laughs) You will also note that Pat's stealth attempting to give me two acronyms of the week did not happen. What? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You, you. Well, we'll we'll get there because oh, I, I edited the second one out because it's like, okay. dude, unless you guys want to sit here for another forty minutes while I try and come up with one. Yeah, I did do that. <laughs> All right, Franca Potente was born July twenty second. She's a German actress and singer. Her breakthrough came through in nineteen ninety eight when she portrayed the titular role in the acclaimed action thriller Run Lola Run. After half a decade of well-received roles in German productions, Patente made the transition into Hollywood with her roles in Blow and the first two films of the Bourne franchise. She also appeared in Shea, The Conjuring 2, Anatomy, Creep, and the only acronym of the week, TPATW, which of course is Tyler Perry at Walmart. (laughs) A lesser-known Medea movie. I thought it was the Pat at Whaley, but whatever. The Pat Whaley Oh, even better. Stop highlighting it and then unhighlighting it. Eh. The Princess and the Warrior. Okay. On television, Patente has starred in Copper, Taboo, and American Horror Story. And she's awesome. Yeah, I like her. Yeah, and she's a cutie petite. She's Yeah, she's in that show now, Claws, I think. Yep. I cut out a lot of stuff, but yeah, that's what she's yeah, on. That's her current joint. Creep is actually pretty good. Kind of a subterranean monster movie. Hmm. Or, well, might not be a monster so much as, like, a murderer. But, anyway, it's pretty good. 
Catherine Hahn, born July 23rd in Westchester, Illinois, is an American actress and comedian who began her career on television, playing Lily Lebowski in the series Crossing Jordan. Hahn has appeared as a supporting actress in a number of major comedy films, including How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Step Brothers, Our Idiot Brother, We're the Millers, and The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. She had a starring role in the two Bad Moms movies and has also appeared in a number of dramatic films, including Revolutionary Road, This Is Where I Leave You, and Tomorrowland, among others. It's cutie. Yeah, I actually, I keep hearing her name and I know I should know who that is. She played um, Leslie Barkley, the uh, political strategist on Parks and Rec. She's a redhead. Oh, okay. Yeah, now was, I know exactly who you're talking about. Stepbrothers. She and was. She is crazy funny. Yeah, she's a really talented lady. I just want to toss this in there that We're the Millers is an amazingly underrated comedy. I gotta see it. I laughed very hard several times yeah. during that movie. There was, if you, if you want, like it, it, it's it's almost as if it was made for us. It was a heist movie made for us. And it's it's just there there's it's it's just it's funny. I mean, it really is. I'd Much eat. funnier than it needs to be. Yeah. All right. Hillary Ann Swank was born on July 30th. An American actress and producer, she's won two Academy Awards for Best Actress. Swank made her film debut in a minor role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer before making her uh, breakout role in The Next Karate Kid in 1994. Swank garnered critical acclaim for her portrayal of Brandon Tina in the 1999 biographical film Boys Don't Cry, which earned her the Academy Award for Best Actress and the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. She starred in Clint Eastwood's film Million Dollar Baby, which won her, her a second Academy Award and Golden Globe Award, also for Best Actress. And Million Dollar Baby was amazing. Which, it just strikes me funny that uh, the next Karate Kid would go on to win two Academy Awards. Or, or yeah. What? I don't know why. It always strikes me funny. That someone in that would? Yeah. That that, that, that was like her first like starring role, and then she went on to do amazing things was her uh i noticed it said uh buffy was that the tv show or the movie i think it was the movie yeah she wasn't on the yeah hillary swank was in the was in the movie yeah well yeah i I don't remember i don't remember the movie very well the only thing i remember from that is paul rubens dying at the end (laughs) that's all anybody really so tv uh just like last week's show the top shows in the land were All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man, and The Jeffersons. If you'd like to hear our comments on that, go listen to last week's show. <laughs> they are the same, aren't they? <laughs> They're exactly the same. Uh, Stephanie Carolyn March, born July 23rd in Dallas, is an American actress best known for her role as Alexandria Cabot in Law & Order Special Victims Unit. She attended Highland Park School with Angie Harmon, who also played the role of Assistant District Attorney on Law & Order Special Victims Unit. March has also guest-starred on 30 Rock, Grey's Anatomy, and Rescue Me. Hmm. So there you go. Don't know who she is. Yeah, that was. I know, I know who she is, but I couldn't match. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I googled who she was, and now that I can see the face, yeah, I I know her. I don't watch any of the Law and Order shows, so I don't know any of those. Bump bump. <laughs> Which is is it? Spe- Law and Order, the one that has the two people typing on the same keyboard? No, no, that was NCIS. Oh, okay. No. Law and no, Order is actually a good show. Oh, okay. NCIS was one of my father's favorite shows, so I am sadly very familiar with that show. <laughs> Enhance. <laughs> Enhance. He loved, he loved him some Jethro. That's um, Enhance. Mark Harmon's character is Jethro. It's a terrible name for a cop. 
If any of our listeners are Jethro cops, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to cross cops named Jethro. Oh, I thought I was imagining it was a Jethro cop, like he had, he was a cop for Jethro's. <laughs> He's always arresting people. Jethro. Jethro comes we go out. down to the cement pond. There's you guys can say. Since people stopped using stills, business has been bad. <laughs> Get pulled over by a cop named Jethro. He's got a flute. <laughs> now that was funny. All right. So Michael Dante DiMartino is an American animation director and was born July 18th in Shelburne, Vermont. And he is. <laughs> Ignore that. Pardon oh. me. If you and write he it, is. he is. I'm sure is. <laughs> he is what it was, what it will be. Pardon me for protruding. Sorry about uh, that. He worked for 12 years at Film Roman and helped to direct King of the Hill, Family Guy, and Mission Hill, in addition to his own animated short, Atomic Love. He studied at the Rhode Island School of Design with Brian Cosentino. Cosin, co, co, Konetsko? Konetsko, sure. Which he created Avatar, The Last Airbender. He is listed as co-author and creator, in addition to executive producer and story editor. There's hmm. a lot of birth in this uh, in this tweet. Yes, there's I mean, one about the death. So yeah. You know. All right. So Joshua Radner, born July 29th, is best known for portraying Ted Mosby on the painfully unfunny sitcom How I Met Your Mother. Boo! I oh, that show stinks on ice. I, I, I you know, it's not the best comedy out there, but I watched. Two or three seasons, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I love three of the main cast members, and I still can't stand that show. I have not seen it at all. I've not either. One of the worst uh, lead, one of the worst lead characters in any sitcom. For sure, Joshua Radner is the worst thing about that show. But I like every other actor on the show. If we have any listeners out there named Joshua Radner, we apologize. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, I love Jason Segel. I loved Allison Hannigan. And I love Neil Patrick Harris, but I just, you know, Marshall and uh, Lily, they're, they're just uh, insufferable. They're not funny. They're just, you know, annoying. And, you know, Barney just, you know, is the best part of the show. Obviously, everybody knows that. But even he gets old after a while. I mean, it's the same shtick over and over Everybody again. gets old, Pat. All the, all the love triangles just really sucked. All the relationship, you know, like Robin and him dating, you know, it's just awful. And, then well, that, and I just like Colby Smulders just huh? in general. I'm glad that so bland. I'm glad that she uh, became Maria Hill for the MCU. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with Joel on that. How I Met Your Mother sucks. Moving on. Born July 25th, Lauren Johanna Faust is an American animator, screenwriter, director, and producer, best known for the, as the creator of the animated series My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Lauren Faust is awesome. Yes, she is. Because of these things, she has also worked on as an animator as Powerpuff Girls, The Iron Giant, Wander Over Yonder, and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. She has also worked with Cartoon Network Studios, Warner Brothers, Hasbro, and Disney. And she is a creator and developer of the toy line Milky Way and the Galaxy Girls. I just think it's awesome that almost every animation project she touches, she's just like, we don't have to make this just like every other cartoon. We can elevate it. And she does. Yeah. I, I did not know her name, but she's obviously very talented. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And having being a father of two daughters while the My Little Pony thing was in its heyday. <laughs> You're an honorary brony. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> nope, it's stuck. No, um, I do not have any pillows, but that's the that's you become a brony. Yeah. They give you a fedora and one of those big freaky pillow things. Uh. Yeah, 
But I do have. Yeah, I just want to say thank you very much, Lauren Faust, for putting enough jokes in there for the parents who have to be in the same room with the cartoons to be amused. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't have girls in the house aside from my wife at all, and I've watched two seasons of uh, My Little Pony. It's just way better than it ever needed to be. Mm. So now who's a brony? Meh. Slap my labels. Slap labels on me. I give a shit. Gay. Like that? What was that? I no. <laughs> Moving on to sports. Daniel Negreanu is a Canadian professional poker player who was born July 26th. He has won six World Series of Poker bracelets and two World Poker Tour championship titles. As of 2018, he is the biggest live tournament poker winner of all time, having accumulated over $39.5 million in prize money. Jeez. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> He was named the WSOP Player of the Year in 2004 and again in 2013, making him the first and only player in WSOP history to win the accolade more than once. He was also the 2004-2005 WPT Player of the Year. He is the first player to make a final table at each of the three WSOP bracelet award-winning locations, those being Las Vegas, Europe, and Asia Pacific, and the first to win a bracelet at each one. In 2014, he was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame. Yeah, and uh, beside behind Phil Ivey, he's like my second favorite uh, poker pro. Yeah, he's he's that's probably my order too if I had to pick. Yeah, for a while Howard Letterer was up there, and then he turned out to not be a great human being. That that almost that's like my top three right there. That's funny. Yeah, and yeah. he fell out of favor quickly. And yep. Uh, moving on, on July 21st, the 61st Tour de France was won by Eddie Merkic. That's my best <laughs> guess. Merkic. Of Belgium. I'm sure it's much more uh, beautifully sounding when it's pronounced by someone who is a native speaker. That is not me. Merkin. Eddie Merkin. On July 23rd, Steve Garvey of the LA Dodgers won the MVP at the 45th All-Star Baseball Game at, as the NL won 7-2 at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. That is the end of the twee. Play us off, keyboard Joel. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Quality all around, folks, right there. (laughs) So, Death Wish. Um, This is my first time seeing this. In fact, outside of The Magnificent Seven, this is now the second Charles Bronson movie. No, third Charles Bronson movie I've ever seen. seen This is also my first time seeing this. Pat? I've seen this before, but this is my second time seeing it. Joel. And and yeah, I was going to say, and this is Joel's 714th. (laughs) I've seen it several times. I don't know how many, but all right. So I, Charles Bronson is one of his heroes. So he and this is one of his iconic movies. So he's seen it quite a bit. I watched like thirty-six Charles Bronson movies in a month once. I'm surprised by two things. First off, that there are thirty-six Charles Bronson movies. There's a hundred. <laughs> he was he did like ninety-nine or a hundred some movies before. What? He passed away. And eighty-two of them were Death Wish movies. Oh, <laughs> Five. 162 credits to his name. Holy cats. Yeah, not counting. I would count TV credits and things, too. Yeah. He was in a lot of westerns, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a Magnificent sure. Seven and um, Dirty Dozen. If you take out the TV, then you're looking at about 100 films. You add the TV, yeah, it gets out of a little insane. That's crazy, Pants. <laughs> All right, so a New York City architect becomes a one-man vigilante squad after his wife is murdered by street punks in which he randomly goes out and kills would-be muggers in the mean streets after dark. That was a terrible sentence. <laughs> the hell's wrong with you, IMDb? That was, written, that was written by some badly orchestrated AI. Yeah. 
This is, like, this is what we think English should sound like. Her <laughs> mouth is filled with secret soup. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is directed by Michael Winner, Chicken Dinner, who has done such great stuff as Hannibal Brooks, Firepower. Can you, imagine, can you be in, imagine being Michael Winner every night? You're like, again, chicken? <laughs> right. Fucking this, chicken. This joke is getting old. Uh, and the Sentinel, the big sleep, you know, stuff like that. Uh, written, writing credits, Brian Garfield, who wrote the novel. Wendell Mays, Gerald Wilson, and Michael Winner are all screenplay writers. Starring Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey. Hope Lang as Joanna Kersey. Vincent Gardenia as Frank o- Ochata. Oka? Oka? Ochoa. Ochoa. Stephen Keats as Jack Toby. William Redfield as Sam Kreutzer. Stuart Marglin as James Janechill. Jeff Goldblum as freak number one in his debut yep yes being just as freaky as you explain expect him to be his uh, mouth wrapped halfway around his face when he was young i know right right i put all these other ones at the end because these were all little named actors that were all in the same movie yeah so helen martin well wait first off jeff goldblum in his jughead hat <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, Helen Martin is Alma Lee Brown. Now, what do we know Helen Martin from? Oh, she was the... Uh, 227 is where I know her from. Yeah. 227. She was the pot-smoking grandma on Friday. I yep. was going to say, she, like, was an old or lady no. from the early 70s, like, all the way to the end of her career. She Don't be 30. a menace. She was born. Yep. Uh, Christopher Guest, looking <laughs> like... Looking I like had to go back and watch that last scene, because I was looking for Christopher Guest throughout the whole movie. And I just completely missed that that was him. Yeah. Yep. When the credits rolled, I went back. I'm like, no. As Patrolman Riley, Olympia Dukakis is a cop at Precinct. She actually, to me, stuck out of the crowd. Now, was that the one that was reading out the uh, stats and all that? No, there was a, a spot where uh, in the middle of a briefing, a cop like smarts off. Oh, goes, oh, my God. Olympia Dukakis. Yeah. And he's like, who said that? Blink- I can't remember off. exactly what she said. But she said something snarky, and I I had already noted her in the middle of the scene. Yeah. So then we've got Paul Dooley. If you don't know Paul Dooley, um, hang down your head, Paul Dooley. He's one of those guys that if you if you saw him in a movie, you're like, hey, it's that guy. Yeah. Uh, he was in um, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, wasn't he? Pretty Probably. Sure he was. Yeah. I mean, he sounds like something he would be in. I kind of feel like Vincent Gardenia is one of those guys, too. Like, I couldn't have picked his name out of a crowd, but he's been in fucking everything. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so along with that, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs as Mugger in the Park number two, uncredited, who you know as Washington T. Washington, or J. Washington. Yeah. He was in uh, 31, the Rob Zombie movie recently. And I Wait think a minute. Be in, uh, this cast list doesn't have the daughter listed? I may have left her out. I was like, because I thought she was a named actress, like someone who I recognized. Oh, figure out, Joel. Al Lewis is a guard at the hotel lobby, who you know as Grandpa. Grandpa Munster. Yay, Grandpa Munster. You're a big old (laughs) perv. That kind of sing-songy. Grandpa Munster. Grandpa Munster. (laughs) And Len Lessler as Cop at Precinct. Now, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I swear the first cop that he talked to when he was at the, when he first went to, to the police station was the cop from Ghostbusters that says, you do your job, pencil neck, and don't tell me how to do mine. Kind of looked like him, but does, I'm not sure. Does anybody recognize Len 
Luzer. Len Luzer? Yeah. yeah. It was Uncle Leo. Okay. Just sort of make sure. Um, the oh! Daughter was played by Kathleen Tolan, and she did Ryan's Hope, The Rosary Murders, Death Wish, and an uncredited role in a movie called Padres. Okay, so I had seen her in other stuff, but she's not a big actress. No. It's just weird that she was left off the cast list entirely. Like, I I, went back to IMDb and couldn't find her. Because her last name is Toby, because she's she's married, so she's not Kersey anymore. All right, so trivia. I was say her last name is Toby, so she's the worst. Toby, Toby Wong. Harley fucking Chan. <laughs> so trivia. After finishing The Stone Killer in 1973, Charles Bronson and Michael Winner wanted to do another film together and were discussing further projects. What do we do next? Asked Bronson. The best script I've got is Death Wish, said Michael Winner. It's about a man whose wife and daughter are mugged and he goes out and shoots muggers. I'd like to do that, said Bronson. The films asked Winner. No, shoot muggers, replied Bronson. <laughs> it actually no, started out as a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> and no one was sure whether or not he was joking. <laughs> Everyone just kind of nervously laughed. <laughs> that, that, that's his idea of method acting. I'm just going to go out and shoot some muggers. So uh, this is all, as we said before. Sir, the... I'm a valet. <laughs> I'm supposed to take this car. Die, mugger. <laughs> this is the film debut of Jeff Goldblum. Uh, he would play a similar role, Hood Number no. Three, in Charles Bronson's later film Saint Ives in 1976, which was with his wife Jill Ireland, and it was uh, more of a comedy. His Hood Number no. I want somebody from my new movie. Get that guy who dressed up as Jughead with the <laughs> mouth that goes all the way around to the back of his neck. Get that tall Jughead. So the role of Paul Kersey was originally intended for Steve McQueen, which would have been strange, as well as Clint Eastwood, Burt Lancaster, George C. Scott. And Frank Sinatra, who all turned it down. There was a lot of different kind of people attached and things before mm. they settled on this, and mm. a lot of names. Yeah, I mean, it was a semi-popular book, but they're just like, okay, this is a movie that end, uh, that begins with basically a violent rape and a murderer, and a lot of stars didn't want to be attached to that sort of project. Yep. I put the next one in, even though it's kind of a repeat of what we talked about, but because of who it's talking about. I thought it tied in nicely with last week's show. Okay. So Lee Marvin was Sidney Lumet's first choice for Paul Kersey, but Lumet dropped out and Marvin was no longer interested because of that. I could see this movie with Lee Marvin. I could too. Definitely kind of in that same vein of uh, actor. I could see it with all those names, except for probably George C. Scott. (laughs) That one just seems weird to me. George C. Scott's got some good stuff. I mean, like look at the um, exorcist three. For sure, but like him in in the role of Paul Kersey makes it a very, very different movie. Yeah. Like Steve McQueen makes it slightly different, but like I don't know, you can almost take anybody out of those magnificent magnificent seven great escape and like if they're not the same actor, but like I could still see it with just a little bit of tweaking. Ernest Borgnine is Paul Kersey. <laughs> that would be loved, different. I would have loved to have seen Frank Sinatra do it. Well he He was uh, a great actor. He was very underrated. He was. Uh, Are you being uh, sarcastic? I can't tell. No, I'm. I'm. I'm being serious. Um, when he wanted to act, he was. Uh, sometime you got to see the movie The Man with the Golden Arm if you want to see Frank Sinatra act the shit out of something. Nice. He plays a heroin addict. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, and he's charming in other stuff. I mean, Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But his whole thing was when he didn't want to act, he just fucking he's like, whatever, just give me a paycheck, and I'm just gonna walk my way through this shit. <laughs> 
If you get him in the right mood, he's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, last trivia here. Charles Bronson was 52 years of age when he appeared in this movie. Damn, he was ripped. Yeah, that's why I put it in there. Because he, when he hit his prime, he uh, he was already pretty old when he started acting. And then I, I thought, yeah, he looked pretty good throughout his life. Was One he- interesting thing that I think Joel is going to disagree with me on. Uh, Char- watching Charles Bronson in this, even though I enjoyed watching him, it made it stand out to me where if he's in a big en- ensemble, he's one of my favorite actors in the ensemble, but he does not shine as brightly when he has to carry the whole project on his own. I agree with you. He's definitely a a Magnificent Seven actor. Yeah, Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. Like He played like in my top two or three characters in both of those films. But it's one of those, like, he's, like, great as seasoning to a good ensemble cast and merely pretty good carrying a film on his own. He's, like, shredded cheddar on a salad just by itself. I was thinking he's, like, cumin. Like, you you love it in something, but you don't want to just, like, shake it under your tongue. He's, like, a medium-rare porterhouse. (laughs) You're way off on that. Yeah. Sorry, dude. Yeah. I mean, I like like him, and I won't even agree with that. I have a giant poster of him hanging on my wall. I believe you. And that's not a wall. I love Arnold Schwarzenegger, but not because he's a great actor. I never said he was a great actor. Charles Bronson is not anywhere close to being a great actor. (laughs) I do think he's a great ensemble player. But I like watching him because of his charisma, his slight lisp he has, the mustache, the swagger. The just kind of He never looks like he wants to be filming anything. (laughs) An actor. He just has this weird charisma that I, I, for whatever reason, attached to, thanks to Dennis. Because, So you guys understand, we were at Zap Video Outlet, which I swear was a, a front for something. There was a section for Charles Bronson movies, and Dennis said, I'm going to introduce you to this guy, and I bet you you will be uh, a fan. I was like, okay. So I watched Death Wish, and then that's what prompted the 30-plus movies that I watched. So this over is the, the movie month. that made you fall in love with him? Well, it was I mean, the I one that made me want to watch you more. Had, if you had watched Magnificent Seven and been like, I want to see more of this guy. Well, what's funny is I did. I only watched his starring vehicles during that time period. I didn't watch the little ensemble ones until much later. Dude, The Great Escape is not a little movie by no. any means. <laughs> I mean where his part is little, not the film itself. Your there's part no such thing as a little part. <laughs> but, I mean, there's just something goofy fun about him, like uh, in the movie Assassination, he shoots a rocket launcher off a motorcycle that he's driving to blow up um, either a train or a helicopter that the president's been kidnapped or something. I forget. It's been a while since I've seen it. Wait, but he, he, shoots yeah, he shoots a rocket launcher off a motorcycle? That he's driving, yeah. That's I kind of want to see that. <laughs> I, I really want to see that because I, I like to think I have a, at least a basic understanding of physics and what would happen. So I'm in my mind, it's probably not as entertaining as it really turns out to be in the movie. Well, it's kind of like the one he used in, uh, in, well, I was going to say in Death Wish 3, but you guys didn't watch that. Um, just a little, you know, ATV personal rocket launcher, whatever you call it, AT something. It's, ju- it. it's just like a, it's just like a motorcycle with a, with a surface-to-air missile on it. That's all. Yeah. But he did a lot of movies with his wife, Jill Ireland. They were married for until she passed away from cancer, and. Um, She's in a lot of his movies, so if you don't like Jill Ireland, then you may not like a lot of his yeah, movies. Yeah, like the Sandra Locke, Clint Eastwood thing. Yeah, they they did a whole slew of movies together. And I'm kind of lukewarm on her, but he loved her, so. 
So we had said before, for two of us, this is the first time that we've seen this movie. Yes. Joel's seen it a bunch of times. Josh, you you were the other one? No, yes, I, sir. No, I've seen it once before. No, I yeah. oh sorry. Oh, I yeah. was the other I'm, one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I was the other first timer. Yeah. So knowing Joel's Yevra about this, what's your take? I mean, I expected to have to adjust my expectation for seventies pacing, and that was absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, I liked the way they structured him going from being a total pacifist with certain views to going through a tragedy and then watching a Wild West show and seeing how that like changed him as his view of what a man's supposed to be. And I think the movie asks some interesting questions. You don't know how much you're supposed to sympathize with this guy and how much you're like, okay, this this is really going too far. And I think they play that line really smartly where you end up coming down on the line of wanting him to get away with it, but not necessarily thinking what he's doing is 100% okay. Well, I agree with you on that because initially I was like, you know, the the scene with the spray painting, you know, the rape and the assault scene. And he goes, there's this, his character arc goes from this helpless, I let, you know, my, my family's been destroyed type feeling to getting the role of quarters and actually attacking back and liking that. And then he gets the gun from the, uh, the Arizona builder guy. And at that point, he has a really strange change in his personality, where in the first time he shoots somebody, he comes home, and he's physically sick from it. But then you see this character move from being physically sick to it to, for lack of a better term, he's kind of getting off on it. For sure. I think he enjoys it a little too much, and I, I think it's meant to make you just a little uncomfortable, even as you're rooting for the character. Yeah, and they even commented in the... Um, the cops talk, we're talking about it. A guy wandering around in the subway with a bag of groceries in his hands is just begging to be mugged. Who knows how long he was wandering around down there. And you certainly don't feel bad for the muggers, but there's a little bit of what is this guy doing to himself? And I mean, is what he's doing right? I think it's very difficult to walk that line where you can ask those sort of questions and believe that the movie's not taking a stand one way or another and just letting it be. And I think they succeeded there. And mm-hmm. that's always a big question, though, is 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 vigilante justice uh, reasonable? You know, and, and, and at that time, it was something that I think was kind of a, a hot button issue. Maybe not quite so much anymore, but... Um, and- I think you're right, and I think almost every other film featuring a vigilante comes down very heavy, almost to the point of being preachy, either pro or anti-vigilante, and this kind of stands out as the exception because it doesn't do either. Go ahead. I cut you off there. Just No, I was just um, – when I was watching it again, I was trying to watch it from a, a, a different perspective because knowing how the other four movies play out um, – as it goes on, it's it's almost like I think Pat had mentioned earlier, the Rambo effect, where the first one is, you know, kind of this Oscar contender kind of drama, and then it turns into you gotta ramp it up. And okay. you can blow their head off by the end of it. Exactly. Which even in part three, which is the most ridiculous of the bunch, um, he's literally baiting people just to, to shoot him because they're the bad guys. Um, and in this one, it w- uh, I had forgotten how much more of an actual um, arc there was to the character, like you were saying, where you actually see him go from this kind of weird thing where he's in the military, he was raised with guns, but he was a conscientious objector, 
and was trying to be a pacifistic good dude with no violent tendencies and then kind of going back to his roots to get his vengeance and get in himself back, you know, cause he lost himself too in the process. Mm-hmm. But Pat, what about you on this? What about me? You haven't said anything yet. I'm curious about your opinion. Um, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, it was pretty much, you know, I'd seen this when I was younger. Um, didn't really remember a whole lot about it. It didn't really stick with me too much. Apparently. I mean, I remember <laughs> there was scenes that I remembered, but I didn't remember like, you know, any of the, like the, the morals or the, the, um, like we were just talking about, you know, the, the whole story of vigilante justice it was kind of lost on me as a kid, but this time, you know, I got it. I thought it was very interesting that he never chose to try to even find who the killers were. And then, you know, spoiler alert, when I watched the second one, I was like, see, that's kind of more what I expected. Well, and I kind of think that that was a strong choice for the film that they wanted to make here. The point is that there's so much random violence that he knows that there's not even a point. It's there are bad guys out there, and this is what everybody should be doing. So what happens to him doesn't happen to anybody else. Like killing those specific people isn't even the point. Right. It's just it's just showing that, you know, to strike out against, quote unquote, evil. Well, not even striking out against evil, just protecting yourself. Because in the very beginning, you know, they have that. He has a commentary with um, the tech, the uh, the builder. Where he's saying, look, back then, this was, you know, this got your dinner, this protected your land, this protected your family, you know, and kind of triggered that that thought in his head. <clears throat> My thing is, is when he started, when he literally started walking around with bait, you know, when he was like actively trying to attract attention to himself versus just being in a right right place, right time type of thing. I thought it was interesting. I read that Charles Bronson's own take on Death Wish was that... Uh, what the movie's trying to say is that violence is bad because it just begets more violence. And I don't know necessarily that that is what the movie said to me, but I think it's cool to know that that's what he thought about it. Which is interesting because in part two, within the first 20 minutes, his daughter has finally recovered and he's living in California, I believe. And no, he, he, they don't ever actually show Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, he moves there, but then he moves from there to California, and then he the third one he goes back to New York, and anyway, um, and blows people away with missiles. <laughs> yes, no, but he he um within the first twenty minutes, his housekeeper and his daughter, well, his housekeeper's murdered, and his daughter ends up killing herself um, because she's kidnapped and assaulted again. Uh, so she finally recovers, and then so she had all, a couple good years in there. Circles back around, right, which triggers him to of course, go out to start finding the people that murdered her, more or less. So, it, violence does beget violence in a way. So he kind of got his his movie in the sequel. That makes more sense within the flow of the movies, but not for just the first movie. No. Yeah, no. And, and it kind of sounds like I really wouldn't care for the sequels. Just, just that combination of them ramping up the violence and making it more cartoony and kind of losing the drama aspect. And even more than in the first one, sidelining women as objects to draw forward the dude's narrative, which is usually something I call out in fiction. Well, yeah. part, makes three, me squicky. part three, they, they literally do exactly that, where he finally dates a girl and they have dinner and make love. And then they go to pick up something at the post office and the bad guys knock her out and blow the car up. I mean, literally, it's like that escalated. Right. It was just this literally one way for them to egg him on. 
But anyway, he's like the male version of uh, Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> Murder he wrote. <laughs> now, it, it is a random Rambo syndrome, though. It really is. Well, have you heard ever guys ever heard of a guy by the name of Bernie Getz? Yes. Okay, he was almost kind of like the whatever you want, Bernie Getz. Well, he pulled a death wish. He got mugged on the New York subway. This actually happened in 1984, and he got mugged on the subway. They caught one of the three, and he was annoyed at the fact that the guy who had attacked him uh, got out of the he got out of the uh, police station before he did. It's like all the stuff he was going through from being the one who got attacked, and then he um, only was charged with criminal mischief for ripping his jacket. He then applied for a concealed carry got on the train and wound up shooting four people yep. for non-fatal injuries but uh even made it into a billy joel song yes bernie and the jets wait no <laughs> that's <laughs> not billy joel yeah <laughs> i would listen to that <laughs> but yeah so i mean it's and then there is a little bit of con- you know conversation on you know was he is this is this like the movies triggered that sort of thing in him, but it's kind of dismissed. I just thought it was interesting that there was actually a a character that did this, a person that actually got, you know, aggravated about it. And, tiny little bald white guy. Yep. That's a little bit and, more uh, falling down, I think. Oh, another mm. great vigilante movie. We but gotta, uh, Death gotta... Wish 3 came out in 85, so this would have happened between after the first two, but before the third one. Yeah, so. Good thing it didn't happen after the third one. He'd have been on the on the train with a bazooka in his hand. <laughs> and you get a concealed carry bazooka? Is that a thing? Texas, you can. It's got to be a small bazooka, though. Got to be big enough to take down a steer. I'm, I, I don't know what to say there. Anyway. Barbecue? Mm, now I'm hungry. But Bernie and the gets. What is happening? I have no idea. I don't know what happened. Crazy pants. So I again with with Josh the pacing was definitely was seventies. Um, the music was, was definitely seventies. Oh well, yeah, the music. Oh, Herbie the music. Hancock. Yeah. What was up with the music? Herbie, Herbie Hancock. Hancock. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, it was so seventies. I own the soundtrack. It's literally right behind me. Oh, it was bad. It wasn't it, terrible. It was bad. It stuck out every Your single face time. Is bad. Was, well, yeah, I agree with you. Every single time it would start up, I'm like, man, what is with this music? I'm not surprised to find that Herbie Hancock is behind it because Herbie Hancock is a little too here we go too much in, <laughs> damn it is gone now rage subsided Herbie Hancock and his Hancocking and that Axel F and I don't know what he's talking about and get off my lawn <laughs> he's it's not Herbie John Hancock. Hancock it's not John Hancock it's Herbie Hancock <laughs> newfangled jazz musicians I do not like jazz. You jazz doesn't like you either, or your face. Dude, if you had to work in as many jazz steakhouses as I did, you would hate jazz too. There's this nothing is, uh, more soul crushing in life than a jazz drum solo. But <laughs> do, do you hate jazz as much as Johnny? <laughs> God damn it, Joel's the only one that got that one. Oh, it's a it's a it's a band. Johnny hates jazz, right? Yeah, I like Johnny hates jazz. Yeah. So we've gone off track. <laughs> How? I don't. I don't. What? No, this is all about uh, Death Wish. Yeah, Death Wish. That's... Herbie Hancock is overrated. What about Death Wish? I say that as someone who loves Rocket. Man, 
Okay, I'm calling break right now. <laughs> yeah, I think we're ready to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, this year, 2018 remake. Yeah. Yeah, when, when Joel and I start rapping, it's probably time for a break. Is that what that was? Yeah, that was 80s rapping, you know. Let's go to break before I stab you two with a hat pin. <laughs> Much less talent required to be a rapper in the 80s. Glow, did it glow, did it glow, glow, did it glow. <laughs> Okay, we are back, and we're going to talk about... Joel's got to peel himself off of his seat. <laughs> what? Let's not talk about that, even if that's happening right now. We're doing, a, we're doing a lot of things that Joel likes this week. What? Peel him off his seat? So, hey. Death Wish. <laughs> Moving on. No, wait. I, I ha- I'm Let's sorry. Talk about how moist Joel is. I, God damn. I know. <laughs> we, we, we talked about the first Death Wish. Now, the unanswered question... Actually, there's two of them, but I'm going to lump them into one. From Death Wish, 1974. Why is there a guy walking around the airport with a comedic Harley Quinn-sized mallet over his shoulder? I already answered this question. No, and, and no, MC Mallet is not MC Hammer's dad. <laughs> okay, that's not an answer for it. It took me out of the movie. <laughs> was... I, hadn't, I didn't even notice it, which is kind of frightening. Because you're a noticer. I just figured 70s pacing when I saw it the first time. Yeah, but and then the guy on the train on the subway. How did the extra get away with that? Like, get, how did he get that past the director? I'm just gonna walk by with a mallet. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> and then the guy in the uh, subway with a giant boat. I missed that one too. Yeah, New but, York. The yeah, thing that, could... that was wild to me is that a uh, an assault with a rape and a homicide is not news at all. But an ex-con gets shot in its front page news. That was kind of depressing, actually. Yeah, it was just one of those, like, it, it stuck out to me. It was like, huh. Yeah, they made a big point that no one even noticed when this horrible crime happened to two middle-class white women. And then an ex-con gets shot, which you would think in this version of New York would happen literally every day. And it is on the front page of the newspaper. Just yeah, stuff did, we forgot to talk about from before the break. That didn't 70, really ring true. 70s New York. It was a pit. So, yeah, so the point stands then that his murder shouldn't have made the front page. Yeah. Especially that's, considering the others didn't. Right. That, w- that was my only thing I was thinking that I forgot to say before the break. Oh, one other thing I forgot to say. Uh, Herbie Hancock sucks. Stop it. Let's, let's move <laughs> on. All right. So this year, which is, in case you're not up on things... 2018. <laughs> oh! <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking to this show to find out what year it is... <laughs> you're going to be really confused. Just buy a calendar, man. What the hell? Uh, Death Wish 2018. After Dr. Paul Kersey is experienced trauma surgeon, a man has spent his life saving lives. After an attack on his family, Paul embarks on his own mission for justice. And what's weird is this movie was only in the theaters in March. They're Getting to DVD a lot faster these days. Oh, yeah. This is directed by Eli Roth, mm-hmm. which I did not know until the final credits. And then I went, oh, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is exactly what happened to me. Roth. As soon as his name came up, I'm like, I told you guys this. Yeah, but we I don't know, listen to I, half I the shit you I say. Sorry. Sorry. I was just saying we don't listen to half the crap that he says. So well, um, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd just, forgotten until I saw his name on the credits. 
we did both just talk right over him. Just yeah. <laughs> I literally yeah. was like, Bruce Willis, Eli Roth, written by Joe Carnahan. Oh my! And you're like, yeah. Now no, you're but, I, but I, yeah, completely forgot about the Eli Roth factor. And as soon as his name came up, I'm like. Some of the things make sense now, okay? Yeah. Like the car, the car, the car scene. That is the first yeah. thing that popped in my head after I saw Eli Roth. The car scene, and the last thing that popped into that guy's head. Yeah. He popped out of that guy's head. <laughs> he was tired. Oh, dude, Joel, that was that was good. So uh, this is <laughs> written by Joe Carnahan, who did such stuff as A Team, which we have talked about, Narc, which we have not talked about. Is that about the video game? No, probably not. Uh, Smoke and Aces. I have to say, I have a guilty pleasure of watching Smoking Aces. I think it's a better movie than it gets credit. I agree. Yeah, it's just one of those, you you turn your brain down to two and just enjoy it. It's it's fun eye candy, you know, as opposed to like, you know, Sucker Punch, which is bad eye candy. Yeah, I gotta give you that. Uh, Based on the novel by Brian Garfield, Wendell Mays, based on the motion picture by blah, 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 blah. So, Bruce Willis... Paul Kersey, Vincent D'Onofrio as Frank Kersey, Elizabeth Shue. Vincent D'Onofrio. Him too. I was going to let that you, one slide, no, but I, I was thinking about it. It was, yeah. it was making me twitch. Okay, no, you got, hey, Joel does it during the tweet. I do it with people's names. That's the thing. <laughs> it's kind of true, yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth Shue as uh, Lucy Kersey. <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> because I know it drives you nuts. Yes. Elizabeth Shue as the wife, Camilla Monroe. Marone, Jordan Kersey, there's all the Kerseys. Dean Norris is Detective Kevin Rains. Bo Knapp, sounds like something you would order at a southern uh, deli. I'm really tired, I'm going to go take a Bo Knapp. <laughs> I, get See, I remember him from the nice guys. Hmm. The nice guys? Yeah, the nice guys. Russell Crowe, uh, Ryan Gosling. Oh, you know what? I meant to, that was one one of those movies that came out when I was like working a shit ton, and I meant to see it. But I, think, I think you would enjoy it. I think I want to see that too. It's on my list. I've completely forgotten about it. Yeah, you guys both like Lebowski, uh, and it's not it's not like Lebowski, but if you like Lebowski, I think you'll like the Nice Guys. Cool. All right. I, so I did want to see it. I know that. Kimberly Elise is Detective Jordan Leon- Leonard. Leon- <laughs> what? Detective Lenore Jackson. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Detective Nizel Nazim. <laughs> All right. Wendy Crewson is Dr. Jill Clavins. <laughs> Drink some more beer, Mike. That'll help. I know. Stephen McCaddy is Chief of Detectives. That's a strange way of putting it. Yeah, right? Why? Yeah, it's a little strange. Who is he? He's the Chief of Detectives. All of them? Yes, all of them. Mike Epps. As Dr. Chris Delgado, uncredited. Hercules I just threw Poirot. Hercules Poirot. <laughs> it's yeah, my that's th- funny because I tried to mispronounce it and I accidentally said it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, actors considered for the role of Paul Kersey included Liam Neeson, Russell Crowe, Matt Damon, Bruce Willis. What? Benicio. <laughs> he was definitely considered. Yeah, they considered yep. him for a little bit. Benicio del Toro, Will Smith, Brad Pitt. Bruce Willis was chosen to star in the end. Brad Pitt. I don't know if I would like that. I would like to see that. That would. I would like. I would not like to see Will Smith. No. I. I'm sorry, but no. Yeah. Benicio like del Toro, though. No, I don't want Benicio del Toro. Well, he was attached he was when Mario. there was. A, you know there was a. Originally, there was a different director attached, and they were together. And then when the director left, Del Toro left. 
And I Liam like Neeson. Del Toro, but I'm I'm with Pat on this now. And Liam Neeson, everybody would have been like again, right? Because yeah. yeah. Liam Neeson in every tough guy role. Yeah, every tough guy role, and him jumping a fence with sixteen camera cuts. <laughs> and Matt Damon wouldn't have made sense to me. And Russell Crowe again. This is kind of something that would have been a pizzazz. Like Russell Crowe do it. Russell Crowe could have pulled it off, I think. I think Matt Damon could have, too, because you get a slightly different take with a little bit more dramatic from the mild-mannered to the killer. Yeah. But, but that you I mean, you almost get that in the whole Bourne trilogy. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, and you need somebody a little older than he is, because to have a daughter that's entering college, you have to have somebody that's at least in their middle to late 40s, if not 50. Huh. Is Matt Damon not that old? Matt Damon is... Uh, he's around our age. He's around our age, yeah. Matt Damon. He, but he looks young, though, so I don't know. It would Matt have been... Damon was born in 1970. Wow. Two Jeez, years older looks, than I am. He looks good. Right? Yeah, I, I, I like thought... Shit. What the fuck? Why'd you have to look that up? Because I thought it sounded right that he could have a uh, daughter in college. Wow. Okay, yeah, color me good. impressed. Uh, now I'm sad. Shit. I just realized this year, cool. this year, I'm gonna have a, a daughter in college. Yeah. <laughs> you could be Paul Kersey. Not, no, you still can't be Matt Damon. I'm not Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon. So, uh, director Eli Roth spent a lot of time with Chicago Chitaco, Chitake, Chitake detectives to get the details of police. Police. Hell, dude! I'm not. The sick thing is, I haven't drunk anything. That's the problem. I'm only drinking water. (laughs) In the film, the coroner of an open murder case board appears in a car that says, "We're gonna need a bigger board." The reference to the famous Jaws line, "You're gonna need a bigger boat." This is something Roth actually saw on a board in the police captain's office. That's funny. That was weird. I think they nailed the Chicago feel just in general in terms of getting specific Chicago media personalities who, like, if you didn't live here, you wouldn't necessarily recognize. Yeah. Even down to the newscasters. Yeah. Yep. 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 And Mancow has gotten fat. Yes, he has put on quite a bit of weight. <laughs> I remember when he used to look like uh, Matt Brown. Not so much now. Well, I don't know. It was the last time you saw like Matt, Brown. Matt Brown. Well, they say, you know, you got a, you got a face for radio. That's why the four <laughs> of us are doing this. Yeah. So, I'm fat brown. <laughs> That's so, what a simple what? <laughs> He's so, not talking about you, Matt. Elizabeth Shue and Vinny D appeared together in Adventures in Babysitting, which also takes place kind of in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, in a much less realistic Chicago. Yeah. Yes. Still I, a great movie. It it is. I love those. I love those movies where you're looking at it and you're like, in order for this shot to be correct, they're standing yeah. in the middle of Lake Michigan. Yeah, it's like <laughs> watching The Matrix, and you're like, those streets don't even intersect. Yeah. Holy crap! The next item on the trivia is incorrect. Is it? It is totally incorrect. Uh, you can go ahead and read it, Mike. All yeah, right. Because they're in Evanston. They are in Evanston. Yeah. Explicitly. Yeah, they call it Which out at the end of it. Chicago. So, 
Yeah, so in the beginning, incorrectly, we find out that Paul Kersey lives in the Lakeshore area of Chicago, and at the end of the original, Paul Kersey, Charles Bronson, is transferred to Chicago, and his firm found him an apartment in the Lakeshore area. Now, granted, if you're in Evanston, you're really near Lakeshore Drive, so the guy calling him Lakeshore Drive makes sense. And I was thinking, it was like a Chicago movie where you've got a doctor who's got a lot of money and is frustrated that his money can't solve his problems. Yeah, that's Evanston. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, Lakeshore doesn't even go all the way to Evanston. No, it does not. No, you've, yeah. It's What's like whoever of, wrote that can't even use Google Maps. What's interesting is with this, though, is that in the first one, he's in New York. He goes to Chicago, which we don't ever see the Chicago incidents. In this one, he goes from Chicago to New York. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Flip. And just a slight piece of trivia, the last place I worked <laughs> in Chicago was in Evanston. Hmm. In the Lakeshore area? Is that a no? No. It was Pete Miller's Steakhouse in Evans. So what's kind of interesting about this is I kind of felt like this made as many mistakes that I usually hold against remakes as you could possibly make and still have me not hate the movie. I don't know that I loved it, but I kind of liked it, even though they changed a few things with kind of shoddy reasoning and sort of missed the point of the original. They definitely missed the point of the original, and especially in the uh, ambiguity department. Um, but I did, I, I too, I kind of liked this movie. I mean, at one point I was, you know, in the middle of watching it, and it just kind of, you know, I think it was um, the the scene when between D'Onofrio and um, and Willis when he pays him back the money, you know, and they were, and they kind of have that little moment. I was like, I just kind of noticed him. I was like, Jesus, I'm kind of liking this. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I kind of feel some of the changes they made were to not invite the whirlwind of getting into the liberal versus conservative thing that there was a little bit of play with in the original. If you're making a movie in 2018, you want to stay well the fuck away from that, especially if your movie has guns in it. That is so crazy polarizing right now. Yeah, so I think they wanted to take some sidesteps by saying, okay, his thing about life and guns, he is a wealthy doctor in Chicago area who has never touched a gun just because that's what happens. And they kind of sidestepped the whole, like, liberal conservative thing, which I kind of appreciated because it would have made it really uncomfortable to talk about on this show otherwise. And and it also, you know, um, addressed the... The, the problem I had with the first one, you know, he actually takes steps to try to solve is the the murder of his wife. And uh, spoiler alert um, is successful in doing so. Yeah, even though it makes this more of a straight revenge tale, which means I think you do lose something valuable out of what, over what the first story had to say. I was still pretty okay with it because it wasn't ham-fisted. Like, there was a reason where his position gave him a unique and different from the first film perspective on how he chose his targets and why and how he was able to actually avenge his wife in a way that a real estate developer could never have. Well, uh, you mean an architect? Architect, right. Well, an architect who worked for a development company. One of the things that I think Carnahan did with the the concept that, that did what you guys are saying and gave him kind of a a different dichotomy is that by making him a surgeon and this is i got this from watching the special features on the blu-ray he he um he's a guy that has committed his life to saving 
people and now he's taking life away. So it kind of creates that liberal versus conservative thing, but in terms of, you know, Hippocratic okay, oath. Bad people. <clears throat> right. He's not killing good people and he's not really baiting anybody like in the first one necessarily. Um, but he's, he's doing the opposite of what he's committed his life to, you know, doing. Can I just say the bowling ball scene was ridiculously stupid? Yeah. Yeah. What was up with it that? It was a big one. That was a part where I went, wait, what? Why? And he left a whole lot of evidence everywhere he went. Well, he was not a professional. He wasn't even a good shot. I do think it's cool that we see someone who is uh, so inexperienced with a gun that he lets the slide mess up his hand. Which is, which in reality, is something a lot of novices do. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, like, literally, with each uh, murder that he committed, he made some sort of fatal error that by all all other real-life scenarios would have gotten him caught after the first time. Also, he was very careful whenever cops were around to hide his injured hand, but he was wearing the watch that he reported stolen. Yeah. I was sure the detective was going to nail him right off the get because he had it on his exposed right hand when he was talking to them. And I thought that was going to be brought up, and it never was. I like how everybody in the operating room just ignores the gun that's laying on the floor. <laughs> like they like they would let a prisoner go into the operating room with a gun still in his hand. I don't think he was a prisoner. Well, he was a, a shooting victim. I'm pre- the point is, the EMT or the cop would not have let that guy get into the hospital with a pistol still in his hand. Somebody, somebody likely would have found it, but I mean... I guess a little bit of suspension is, of disbelief is needed. In and you've also got, this isn't real Chicago. This is the interpretation of Chicago that outsiders have. Like, there's this whole stereotype of how Chicago is just this lawless wasteland with shootings every day. Well, yeah, there are shootings that happen in certain neighborhoods. But, like, this film, while it paid close attention to certain details i think it was the caricature of chicago that most of america believes the city is and they would believe oh guns are so common in chicago that they're literally falling yeah there's guns on the trees in chicago there aren't that's how i got mine (laughs) oh the 45s are in season (laughs) uh you go to the bushes to get your ammunition but as much as I dislike Mancow, I do think he was necessary in this. I think it was cool how they had Mancow and Shay in the morning kind of as different opposed takes in a similar media, uh, both giving their opinions on the situation, not always disagreeing. No. But yeah, it um, scene when he walked up and just shot the ice cream man was pretty sweet. That was pretty sweet, but pretty unbelievable. Because if you're a drug dealer on that street, everybody around you, and and I, one thing Somebody that I, else would have shot him. Yeah, and one oh, thing I'm, I don't know. I, I think as soon as there's a murder, you don't want to be seen on the scene with it. It's like first you run away, and then you had all of the uh, people oh like free drugs. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch because initially when the the other guys were around him, I'm like, those must be like his enforcers, like his bodyguards. They hauled ass out of there as soon as the shooting started, didn't retaliate. And then, of course, all the the vultures swoop in and are like, "Okay, free drugs, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. As someone who grew up where gang related shootings were a common occurrence, that's more realistic. I think than most people realize, like as soon as the gunshot goes off, everyone who's talking shit 
is running because they no, don't want to catch the next bullet. Yeah, no matter how much you pay a bodyguard as a drug dealer, you can't pay them enough to actually take a bullet for you after you're already dead. That's a good point. <laughs> well, my time's done here. Yeah, they're not sticking around to wait for their benefits to kick in or anything. They're not, <laughs> no more dental plan. Hey, and racist. I, I like that Sway in the Morning brought up the uh, notion of race, but it wasn't like a huge deal. Like, it was something that had to be said well, in said 2018. It only, yeah, when it applied, and as soon as it didn't, he dropped it. He didn't beat the... Right. It was like, this is a question we need to ask. Do we want to celebrate a white dude in a hoodie gunning down black people? And it's a question that is totally relevant. It's but, something that it wouldn't have rung true if he hadn't said it. But then, then as soon as he shoots a white guy and a Hispanic guy, everybody's like, oh, okay, it's not racial. He's right. going the Neapolitan effect. <laughs> if you look, yeah, you look at the first incident, he was saving a, a black woman. Yep. So, you know, and I, I, there were, there was definitely some parts of it that I was like, okay, this is turning into the later death wish films, like the, uh, the car scene or even the, the pawn shop sequence. Um, yeah, well, the car scene I thought was a little bit ridiculous. Dude, when he went straight for the sciatica. Oh my God. I was as someone with sciatica where just a little inflammation there means I can't drive for a week. And he goes in there with a scalpel and brake fluid. I was like, okay, as a guy in his 40s who has problem with that nerve, I was like twitching on the couch just at the idea. I can imagine. So I think we need to, before we get too far down this road and eventually end, need to talk about the end because they take a totally different turn about the last third act of the film, not the, the finale, you know, what happens with the detective, but where he goes out to the gun shop that he went to initially to, to talk to the woman buys the guns legally in a very record time. Um, and then proceeds to spoiler alert, take out the last of the bad guys with firearms purchased legally to cover his ass. Cause he knew they were coming, which I thought was kind of a, a fun little twist. And I thought it was neat that you kind of knew that the cops were so onto him that you're going to have the parallel with the first film where they kind of let him go. They say, mm-hmm. okay, we get it. You're not doing it again. Cool. Okay. We're all good here. Have you gotten this out of your system? Good. <laughs> um, Patrick, you're from Texas. I'm going to lay a bet that the, the rifle that he purchased from that gun shop is not, doesn't fire that way. No, I mean, you can modify it, of course. I mean, the, 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 you, you can't buy a fully automatic. You have to modify it. To yeah, I mean, that's and that's one of the things about about movies that have a lot of guns especially in this situation that's just kind of ridiculous it's like everybody's throwing you know a hundred bullets in the air every second yeah i mean the the more common thing is for people to buy the bump stock which you know uh, absorbs and pushes your recoil back so your trigger finger fires faster yeah but But i thought not that fast no i thought it was interesting that he knew that the cops were going to be on him if they weren't already at that point and covered his own ass to finish what he started. And I have to admit that even though in the originals there is no other family, Paul Kersey has no other family but his wife and daughter. Um, uh, untrue. He had his whiny son-in-law. Eh, yeah, but yeah. he doesn't make it past the first film. Um, oh, okay. I was only looking at the first film because I was specifically thinking that D'Onofrio was a big upgrade from whiny son-in-law. Guy. Come on, Dad. Well, Come on, Dad. Give me a break, Dad. <laughs> That, that's what I liked about this one, though, is that the introduction of his brother as who's kind of the fuck up, but that is the moral voice in it, um, I thought was a nice touch, actually. 
And not going where he's full fuck up, where his deaths get them into further trouble, like we've seen in so many other movies, where he turns it around and is able to pay his significantly well off, better off brother back. I was pleasantly surprised by that turn for his character. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that was when the movie kind of kind of got me. I was, you know, I was, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I'd like to pay somebody back someday. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, how good would that feel? Well, and the other thing was is that this. I was legitimately concerned that they were going to take a film that I enjoyed, the original, and turn it into another Die Hard. And they don't know why you think that. <laughs> they they did enough with the character that they kept him from being this giant action hero. Now, granted, at the end, he kind of started to go into that territory. And if they do make a sequel that takes place in New York, then he'll probably go into the the territory that Bronson did later. But at least for this one, he didn't go full John McClane. It wasn't quite as going to be that element in in anything he plays because it's his most iconic role. Right, that's true. But I wish they would have done more of what they did in the initial in the original, where you saw kind of the slow turn into what he became later. And here, it was much. It was a much sharper left turn from you know kind of. Not passive, totally pacifistic, but not a very violent guy to all out, you know, <laughs> blowing people away um, kind of gratuitously. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Yeah, it sounds like we all had similar perspective on this film and similar issues with the things that made it not maybe as great as it could have been. Like, I don't think this deserved to barely appear in the theaters and then basically be a straight to DVD. But, you know, it's not an instant classic either. It's it's one of those OK movies that maybe deserved a little more uh, than it got. Not as bad as it not as bad as people assumed it was going to be. And anything with Elizabeth Shue needs to get more time in the theater. (laughs) Unfortunately, Elizabeth Shue did not get much time in this one. I know. I was very sad. When yeah, out of curiosity, I, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes, and this was at 18%, and I think that's unfair. And now, is that critic or? That's critic. What about what fan? About audience. Audience were 77%. See, that's. Which I think is about where it belongs. Yeah. It's decent, but it's not. You know, I'm, and again, this is not one that I would not run out and buy the DVD for. No. But you know what? If this shows up on cable and it's already on because it came on after something else, I might sit down and watch it again. Yeah, I did buy it. <laughs> of course you did. You saw Death Wish and got all excited. Ooh, they changed the printing of the font. Must be new. Yeah, all the other ones, so. You watched half of it and you're like, wait a second, this isn't Charles Bronson. This is Charles Brunchen. God damn it, I was about to say it. <laughs> That's a lot of French toast. <laughs> so, yes. So, shall we do thumbs up, thumbs down? Should. Yeah, I think that's a word about that point. <clears throat> All right, so Pat, what about you? I'm going to have to go thumbs up for both. I can definitely get behind the idea of shooting people that hurt your hurt the people you love. Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much where Pat is, uh, where I, I'm a moderately enthusiastic thumbs up for the original and a kind of lukewarm thumbs up for the remake. I'm thumbs up on both. Moderate, semi-thumbs up for the new one. For the old one, it was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. Yes, I completely am with you on that. Yeah, I mean, for all the all the uh, rumors you hear about this, and I mean, I say rumors, but all the commentary that you've heard about, ooh, Death Wish. You know, it it the scenes that I thought were going to be bad aren't were not as bad as I was anticipating to be, and the 
character development of him was actually pretty good. I I enjoyed seeing his character change from kind of a pacifist to almost a masochist. <laughs> and, and sadist. I, sadist. sadist. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He likes inflicting. Um, if you're looking for other Charles Bronson movies that aren't ensemble pieces, I would say watch Hard Times with. Uh, Oh God! Is it Lee Marvin? Nobody, nobody was looking for that, Joel. Yeah, I was gonna say watch the ensemble pieces. He plays They're so a, much better. He plays a boxer. It's it's phenomenal. But anyway, um, Charles Bronson does. I would well obviously thumbs up for the original, and I, uh, I I had a thumbs up for the remake as well. I I don't know how I couldn't with everybody involved, but I enjoyed it. All right. So what do we have on tap for next week, gentlemen? <laughs> Forgot I to put in the notes. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, it's down here. We are doing a movie, another movie. We are doing 310 to Yuma. Oh yeah, another western. So yeah. if uh, you want to give your opinion on Charles Bronson, or just call us and ask us what year it is, you can do that at 708 now wrap. That's 708-669-9727. Yeah, we do not guarantee correct answers though. Uh, again, if you're looking for our older stuff, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Talk, Shoe, FM, NoonFM.com, and other podcasting directories. Podcasting. Podcasting. And wow. I gotta, you got to remind me to drink when we do these shows. I, think I was so. going to say, you need to hit the sweet spot where you're not slurring but can say words. I'm not drinking. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm Don't saying. What's going on? It's not well, enough. The answer is, no, is not no alcohol. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a plus right there. <laughs> So yeah, so uh, thank you very much for listening to this, and go get yourself a, a gun. I started to say, go get what? yourself a movie. Go watch Three Ten to Yuma. Whoa! Get your concealed carry license. Yes. Start blowing away muggers. Let's 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 go. Well, let's not endorse Blow those. Blowing muggers in tandem. Stop. No. Yeah. Riding bikes. <laughs> not on tandems in tandem. <laughs> oh. the worst mugging. <laughs> These two guys <laughs> biked up to me. Him and another guy. <laughs> how did how did you catch them? They couldn't get in sync for the pedaling. That's <laughs> one guy just kept getting his ankles beat to shit. <laughs> <laughs> the other guy just fired a rocket launcher backwards. <laughs> it happened. You're Isaac. That makes Mike Captain Stubing. Why? Because <laughs> you're our captain. Captain Stubing, the African explorer. Wait, what? Was captain Spalding, but you know. Captain Stubing didn't have his own song unless you count the Love Boat theme song. The Love Boat. Da, 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 da. Something, and something exciting and new. <laughs> I want to be Doc Bricker. <laughs> I want to be Julie. No. Okay. <laughs>